The following live presentation by Rabbi David Aaron is brought to you by Israelite, inspiring a renaissance in Jewish living. To learn more about Israelite, please visit our website at www.israelite.org. Additional contact information is available at the end of this presentation. Thank you for learning with Israelite and enjoy the experience. What we have here is a development, a play of words, but not just words that have no meaning. We have the name, the Yud, the He, the Vav, and the He, which is our encounter of God as the all-encompassing reality, where in which we exist only out of the grace of His shared being. We are infinitely smaller than a drop in the ocean of infinity. Right? And therefore, when one realizes that truth, one cannot help but completely surrender and nullify themselves. We have another name of God, which is the name Elohim, which indicates precisely the opposite. God is a creator, the source of multiplicity. God designs a world with borders, with identity, with categories. The whole process of creation is one which evolves towards greater degrees of identity, definition, individuation, until we reach a person who apparently has independence, a man with free choice. He's not only mobile physically, but he has choice. And he has taken on a quality which is of the likeness of God. Right? In the image of God. Elohim says that I have an identity, I have choice, I have power. My choice can change the world. My choice can establish various consequences. And God will judge me. Why will God judge me? Because what I have to say and what I have to do is really important, has genuine effects in the universe. And God responds. God relates to me because he's, in divine, he's a part of divine significance to me. Now the name Elohim, exclusive, independent of a notion of any sense of yud Vavke, would be the source of idolatry and is the source of idolatry. When a person has an exclusive orientation, philosophical orientation, of God as an Elohim only, so then there's a possibility for Elohim Acherim, other gods. There's a possibility for an absolute multiplicity of powers which are independent of God, including myself. I too could be an Elohim. And therefore the snake came in that name too. The first man and woman said, you know, Elohim doesn't want you to eat the tree because he doesn't want competition. He doesn't want you to actualize your independent power of him. Okay? What the first man should have realized and the first woman should have realized is, you're right, God is an Elohim, and therefore I have choice, therefore I have power, and therefore I have true identity. But God is a yud Vavke, and therefore... Although I have a distinct reality, I do not have an independent reality. I only exist within the being of God as an act of grace of His, so to speak, sharing His being with me. I am ultimately in a state of surrender and nullification to God. The first man and woman should have chosen 
to say yes. They should have realized they could have say no because God is an Elohim. But why would I want to choose to say no when I recognize that God is Yud Vavke? And my ultimate experience of genuine divinity is not by trying to imitate God and setting up some kind of competition and attempting to discover godliness in and of myself. But my status of godliness will be derived through recognizing that intimate association that I share with the divine through His grace. That's it. Like, that's it. Okay? Well, once they broke down, once they didn't realize this, they separated the name yud Vavke from Elohim. There are generations whose religion is based on complete surrender without any identity, and there are religions that are based on so much identity, there's a polytheistic system, there are many forces, and there's a struggle in the world. Along comes a man named Abraham. And he is this first human being who, with a innate sense of surrender to God, is able to accept the command of Yudke Vavke to establish himself so that Yudke Vavke will be unto him an Elohim also. You follow how it works? It's so systematic. It's like very, it's very clear. And Avram, whose innate natural religious experience is one of surrender, of completely giving of himself over to others and himself over to God, he is being asked to establish himself and assert himself so as to enable the possibility of a relationship with God. There's a real me. And God is not only a Yud Kevavke, but also an Elohim. His son Yitzchak, on the other hand, has an innate sense of Elohim. There's a judge. And what you do means something. And there is consequences. And you better fear that judge. Okay? Now, of course, Elohim is the name of fearing God. You fear Elohim, you love Yud Kevavke, so to speak. Because Elohim suggests this distance. There's me, there's God, right? And me against God, I lose, because God is Elohei Elohim. God is the God of gods. And so even if I do successfully actualize that godliness that I yearn to actualize, I'll never win. And when I set myself up for that kind of competition, I lose. And therefore the first man who did set up that competition by accepting the exclusive orientation of God as an Elohim does feel uncomfortable with himself and is running and hiding. Okay, Even though naturally before he didn't feel uncomfortable with himself, although he didn't understand why. So Yitzchak is the master of fearing God. Okay, He's the master of fearing God and he has to learn to love God. Whereas Avraham is the master of loving God. He just goes around telling everybody about the compassion of God. Right? And he has to f- learn to fear God. Okay? And strike that balance that there is, a, there is a distance, but that distance is important. These two characters, Avraham who moved from a state of surrender towards assertion of self, Yitzhak who moves from a state of self towards a state of surrender. Okay? These two movements 
is setting the stage for the third personality. Okay? Third personality, which is Yaakov, who is the integration of these two movements and can hold it all together. Right? And what does Yaakov do? Well, in the Yaakov life, he's got a brother, Esav, who is your Mr. Self. Mr. Ego. Okay? And then you have Yaakov who sits in the tents and studies Torah, devotion to God. Yitzchak wants to bless Esav and intends to balance Esav out and get Esav to incorporate a little bit more of a sense of humbleness and surrender. Rivka recognizes that Yitzchak doesn't realize how way off Esav is. And it would be a better bet to invest in Yaakov and Yaakov could be that person who could incorporate the two. Okay? And so, the power of Gvurot is drawn from the name Elohim and the power of Chasadim is drawn from the name Yudke Vavke. Yitzchak wants Esav to incorporate a greater force of Chasadim in his life, a greater sense of unity and surrender. And Rivka wants Yaakov to incorporate a greater sense of Gvuros in his life. Okay? When Yitzchak blesses Yaakov thinking he was Esav, he thought Esav did Shuva. Okay? And yet what he realizes after was his son Yaakov really had it in him and really is the unification. That's why it says, and Yaakov sits in tents. So the Zohar says, what are the tents? It didn't say he sits in a tent. He sits in tents, two tents. What are the two tents? So Zohar says that Yaakov was able to sit at the same time in the tent of Abraham and in the tent of Isaac. He could incorporate these two personalities within himself and their strengths. Okay? So now, Yaakov goes in there and granted, I personally can't figure out any other way to get away with it. He lied. I mean, he said, Is you, are you my son? He says, yes, I am. Now Rashi says, this is what Yaakov said. Yaakov didn't say, yes, I am. Yaakov said, I am. Esav is your firstborn. <laughs> In other words, you know, he tries to minimize the striking lie that apparently seems to be. And he says, Ani, Esav, Bechorcha. In Hebrew, it works much better. I am. You know? But then you say, well, what is Rashi doing over here? I mean, like, does that make me feel a little better? So it wasn't technically a lie, but basically it was manipulation. I don't think Rashi was trying to minimize what Yaakov was doing. I think Rashi was simply clarifying what Yaakov was doing. Yaakov was being very manipulative, which is the state of the art of Esav. Okay? And Yaakov is able to do what Esav does 
but for the right thing. In other words, to use manipulation against the manipulator is according, it's proper. I mean, it's a Gemara that says, with the righteous, be righteous and straight, but with the crooked, right, be cunning as a snake. That's what it says, okay? Be cunning as a snake. You can't be naive. And the Talmud says the sages are far from being naive, right? There's a Gemara that says that the sages are cunning as snakes, okay? They're not like these little naive people. They know exactly where the world's at. And they know exactly how to deal with people. And when you got a guy who's a con artist, well, to protect yourself and to protect the world, you got to know how to undermine him. But how do you undermine him? By playing fire against fire. And so Yaakov does this. He goes in there to save the world from Esau. Because my gosh, if Esau gets a hexer from Yitzchak, if he gets a rabbinical supervision, gets on his forehead a badat, walks out there and tells the world, I am the blessed of my father Yitzchak, I carry the torch across. This is terrible. But what do you do? What do you do in that situation? Okay? So what he did, and of course, even that was reluctant, even that was in fulfillment of his mother's, you know, will, you listen to my voice, I'm commanding you, you better go do this. Okay. He goes in there and he incorporates Esau within himself. Okay. He incorporates Esau within himself. And learns how to use what Esav knows in order to deal with the evil in the world. Just as we mentioned, right? You have to play your Yetzahara against your Yetzahara. If you go head on with your Yetzahara, right? You're going to lose. But if you know how to manipulate your own Yetzahara, and when your Yetzahara tells you, sleep in, don't get up. Don't learn Torah. See, you can say to Yetzirah, you know, Yates, I just want to get up and go to the bathroom. And then I'm just coming right back. You just wait here for me. Okay? And you're allowed to do that. You fake yourself out. Because, because if you say, no, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, you're never going to get there. So don't do that. Right? It's like trying to make a decision to, to stay a year and learn Torah. It's very difficult to say, oh, I'm going to take a year, I'm going to spend a year. You don't have to do that to yourself. Why are you going to do that to yourself? The Yetzirah loves that kind of stuff. Right? Right? You say, Yetzirah, ah, I just want to stay another day. Right? And then after that, we'll go, we'll go out, you know, we'll go to Paris and have a good time. But, you know, just another day. Right? That's, yeah, you got to work with it. And so, when Yaak, when Esau comes in and he's crying, he says, my father, how can you do this? What's going on? His father says to him, your brother Yaakov came in with cunningness, with mirma, and took your blessing. And one of the understandings of it is, your blessing, Esau, was your cunningness, and you made it into a curse. Right? If you're a cunning person... Right? There's a lot of things you can do for the world. You could become a secret agent man. Right? 
You can do a lot of things. If you're a master of disguise, you can do a lot of great things for the world. Okay? And you, Asaph, you were cunning, you were manipulative, but with your cunningness and your manipulative, if you would have learned how to manipulate your own Yetzirah, right? And manipulate the evil people, which was what the, uh, the oral tradition says, that when they had hard court cases, they used to call an Asaph. They just knew that Asaph will get to the bottom of this guy. Because they felt that there was something fishy about this witness. But they just couldn't get the witness to really open up and tell the truth. Bring in Asaph. Asaph knew exactly how to get that witness to admit. Right? So you could be a fantastic lawyer. Right? You could have Meryl Streep start to cry her eyes out that she really did it or whatever. Right? You could really get the greatest actress to break down and boom. You got him. So he said, Asaph, you could have done so much. Right? You could have done so much for good. Okay? For good. And he saw within Asaph the possibility of being a great oral tradition master. Because one of the traditions of, one of the arts of oral tradition, and it's a bit of a dangerous thing I'm going to say, is sometimes the rabbi needs to know how to manipulate the halakha in order to fulfill a basic aspect in Judaism of compassion. He's not going to change the halakha, but he's got to know how to find a loophole. Okay? Find a loophole for this situation because it demands it right now. He can't go against halakha. Right? And you'll find that there's a very interesting book by uh, Rabbi Berkowitz called Not in Heaven about oral tradition and halakha. And how the rabbis created something called the prose ball, which is, you know, in those days, when you would lend somebody, when you get to the Shemitah year, if they didn't pay you back, then, boom, the debt is annulled. And in original Torah consciousness, right, people would do that. And even though it's getting close to the Shemitah year, and it's very possible within about two years, this guy might not pay me, and if Shemitah comes through, the debt is annulled, Okay. Well, so then people would say, I don't care because I got to help the poor. But what happened was people began to neglect and not lend money to the poor because, uh-oh, Shemitah is coming. Okay? So the rabbis had to figure out some legalistic way because they saw that people were not on par with their compassion. They must create a legalistic way so that the person lending the money will be protected even through Shemitah, through something called the prose ball, which, you know, is this whole long loophole, how the money becomes transferred to, to the Sanhedrin, and therefore the Sanhedrin debts were not nullified. You know, it's a whole thing, right? So a person looking at this would say, well, come on, what's going on over here? Let's face it, okay? Let's face it. Or something like selling your chametz on Pesach. Well, what is this? What are you doing? You know, technically it's not mine because I really sold it to this non-Jew who, who will give it back to me afterwards. He doesn't really have to, so it's not completely a fake-off. I mean, it's not a fake-off. He really owns it, but you know what he's talking about. It says, burn your chametz. You burn your chametz. 
But as the situation in life goes on, and it's clear that people could not meet up with those standards, the ideal is burn your chametz. But people own so much, and people this and that, and you know, people started to 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 possibly neglect them. The rabbis create within halacha, not outside of halacha, right? Within halacha, something that you say, "Oh, come on, what are you doing? It's a loophole." That's like an ace of kind of thing. Who are you trying to fool? You sold your chametz and put a little tape on your on your uh, cupboard, and you know, you come on, what's going on? Well. That's one of the talents that the rabbis have the right to do in the name of Torah and a surrendered state to God, of course. But with that, you could do some rotten things. Are you doing it in the name of God to preserve Torah? Or are you trying to undermine Torah? Well, Yitzchak saw, you know, what Esav's got is so important. And as we learned... His head is buried in Mahat Machpelah. He had a good Yiddish cup, right? His head is lying there next to all the greats because he had a good head in his roots. Okay, he was good. But because it's out of context, it's not with a sense of surrender to God. That's where he goes off. So granted, you know, the Rashi says, that Yaakov didn't really lie, apparently, because when he said, are you Esav? So he didn't answer the question. He said, I am. Esav is your firstborn. Anochi? Esav bechorcha. You know, put a little comma there. So you'd say, well, he, you know, technically did he lie? No, he technically didn't lie. But what are you talking about? He manipulated. But it doesn't get paid back for it anyway. Ah, so that's what we're going to see in what we're going to explore today anyways. But what we see over here is that Yaakov has incorporated the art of Esav. Okay? And in fact, the Zohar says what he did is he really beat the snake. Because this was the art of the snake. The snake is a manipulator. Right? The snake is a manipulator. But the way you fix the snake is not by simply destroying the snake. What you've got to do is turn the snake around so that even his art will be in service to God. That's the ultimate fixing. Okay? If you can take that snake who had the art of manipulation and again use it for the purposes of God in the world... And of course, it's a very dangerous thing, you know. You feel the, the fine line and how a person can go this way or that way. And this is what Yaakov did. But you have to understand, Yaakov doesn't feel so comfortable. He doesn't feel so sure of himself. He knows that, listen, bottom line, no one could ever say that Yaakov got the blessings through manipulation because Yitzchak, after realizing it was Yaakov, said, and may he be blessed. Now that he did it, he said, by gosh, that's my son Yaakov, Kolakavod, right? He's not that kid I thought he was that just would sit in the tents and learn. He's able to use what Esau has because without what Esau has, you can't make it in a real world, okay? You can't make it in the real world unless you know Esau's art, know when to use it against the evil, Okay? And so Yaakov is told, run, because your brother Esau is out to get you. He wants to kill you. 
All right. So chapter 28, verse 10. Yaakov leaves from Be'er Sheva and goes to Harana. It's a little strange. No? Yaakov leaves from Be'er Sheva and goes to Harana. Yaakov went to Harana. No. Yaakov is doing two things. If I were to say, you know, if you knew that I was in Toronto and I went to New York, you'd say, David went to New York. You wouldn't say, and David left Toronto and went to New York. Right? If I say David left Toronto and went to New York, then there's really two things I was doing. Right? What are they? One is I'm leaving Toronto. And that's its own purpose. And the other is I'm going to New York. There's two different things. So Yaakov is leaving Beersheba. Okay? Because he's on the run. He wants to get away. Okay? His going is not in order simply to go. His going is in order to leave. Alright. So let's keep this in mind. And he happens upon a place. Vivgaba Makam. And he hits a place. Now, the oral tradition says, what does this mean to hit a place? So the word, the, the Gemara in Brachot, page 26, says that this word vivga means to pray. Okay? It's a, to meet the place. So what does it mean he prayed? Because one of the names for Hashem is place. Right? Hashem is Hamakom. So he met the place, meaning he prayed. So the Talmud learns from here, we learn from here, that Yaakov established the tefillah, the prayer of Ma'ariv. Night prayer. Avram established Shachrit, morning prayer. Yitzchak established Mincha, afternoon prayer. That was his favorite time to pray, so to speak. But Yaakov established Ma'ariv, okay, night prayer. What's it got to do with all this? We'll try and put it together in a second. As well as V'yifgav makom, the old tradition says, means that the place came towards him. That he had this mystical experience of Kfitzat Derek, which is like, he found himself in this place. He all of a sudden was in this place. This place, rather than he went to it, it came to him. So something mystical happened, which is place came towards him. Then it says, and he slept there because the sun had come. Okay? Which means the sun had set. So that also is a very strange kind of language. He slept there because the sun had set. So your old tradition says, the sun set before its time. So what we have here is that place, space, is transcending the rules of space, and time is transcending the rules of time, according to this Midrash. And he takes from the rocks of the place, and he puts them... Meiroshotav, from his head, which is a little difficult because it, it doesn't mean underneath his head only, but above and around his head. 
In other words, we are taught that what he did is he built with rocks a kind of protection under and around his head. Okay? Vishkav Bamakomahu. And he slept in that place. Which implies that in another place he did not sleep. So the tradition, very clear and sensitive to these nuances in the words, says that, yes, in fact, he did sleep in that place, but hasn't slept for the last 14 years because he was involved in the study of Torah. So, what is going on over here? Yaakov was not able to sleep for a long time. He intentionally did not sleep. And now he's being forced to go to sleep in a place where he would prefer not to because if he's putting this around his head, it must mean that he's frightened. In the old tradition says, yes, he's frightened of wild animals. So he thought, well, at least I'll do something to protect my head because if they get at my head, then I'm really gone. If they you know, hit another part of my body, at least I'll be able to react, save myself. So he took these rocks, protected his head. He's nervous. And God is, so to speak, forcing him to go to sleep. And in fact, he is nervous. He's feeling very uncomfortable with what happened with Asa. And God wants him to go to sleep. Now, there's a reason why people can't go to sleep. They can't let go. Right? They can't let go. They're so preoccupied, so full of anxiety, they just can't go to sleep. Now, what he did to remedy that was he studied Torah consistently. So at least he was studying. But now God is forcing him to not be in a state of studying. God is forcing him to go to sleep. And in this particular place. Alright? And sure enough, he has a dream. And on this, in this dream... Behold, a ladder established on the ground with its head reaching the sky. Now, when you read this verse, it can be understood to mean not that he, he dreamt of a ladder, he dreamt he was a ladder. Okay, behold, a ladder. With his head in the sky. His, meaning he is the ladder. Okay? That can certainly be both. But I want you to know that that is certainly one way of understanding it. That he is this ladder. And behold, angels of Elohim are going up and down it or him. It can be translated either way. Follow? Both. Him. Or it. What's strange about these angels? These angels are going up and then going down. Why is it so strange? Right. I mean, angels should be coming down from the sky and then returning back to the sky. 
But these angels are going up from earth to heaven and coming back down. Vihine yudke vavke nitzavolav. And behold, yudke vavke is upon him or it. And he says, I am Hashem Elokei Avraham. I am Yudke Vavke, and yet Elohei Avraham, your father, Elohei Yitzchak. And the land upon which you sleep, to you I will give, and to your seed. Uh, heavy, very heavy. And again, by the way, the Midrash points out another kind of metaphysical thing happening, which you don't find the Midrash talk about so much. Just here you find a high concentration of these mystical things. Rashi brings it down. What do you mean the land that you sleep on? How much land does a person sleep on? What, God is going to give me about four cubits of land? The one that's underneath my body to me and my children? So your tradition says, no, God folded up all of Eretz Yisrael and put it underneath his head. Why would the Midrash say these kinds of things? Okay? So the Midrash is obviously suggesting that Yaakov is having an out-of-space, out-of-time experience. Okay? Time is facilitating his needs and space is facilitating his needs. Time and space are subservient to him. He is not subservient to them, which is generally the way certainly our lives are. We're bound to time and bound to space. But somehow, time and space is bound to him and his relationship to Hashem. Now what's going on? Why does he see these angels going up and then going down? Well, the Midrash says a couple of interesting things. There's a Midrash that says, these angels were going up from looking at him and saw that his face was engraved into, carved into the holy throne of God. And then they went down and they saw, yeah, that's him up there. And then they went up and says, yeah, that's him down there. And then they went down and said, and the Midrash said, and they decided to kill him. But God said, don't touch him. They were overwhelmed. Who is this guy? What chutzpah is this guy? They have his face engraved on the very throne of God and he's sleeping. Just sleeping. So that's one Midrash. Another Midrash says that he saw the angels of the future superpowers because every nation has an angel. Every nation has an angel. And so he saw the angels of the various future superpowers who were to conquer the Jews that's why God says, this land I will give you, because the, these nations will conquer the Jews. 
He saw a Babylonian angel rise up a number of stairs and came tumbling down. He saw the Roman angel come tumbling down. Saw the Greek angel. Saw the Persian angel. He saw all of Jewish exile prophetically because he is the first Jewish exile. He is one individual but he is actually the metaphor for all of Israel going into exile. He's running. Well, he sees all these superpowers go up as they ascend this ladder towards godliness and come tumbling down. And God said to Yaakov in this Midrash, Yaakov, come on up. And Yaakov said, Oh no, oh no, I'm not going up. I see all these angels going up and coming tumbling down. And God says to Yaakov, Yaakov, I promise you, if you come up, you will not come tumbling down. And Yaakov did not ascend the ladder. A very interesting midrash. He would not ascend this ladder. What's this all about? These angels are going up and going down. One of the explanations is the oral tradition in the Kabbalah says that whenever you do a mitzvah, you create an angel. Okay? You create an angel. If you do a mitzvah, you create a positive angel. If you transgress, you create a negative angel. What is that supposed to mean? Creating angels. It means that my act generates a divine force in the universe. Because angels are considered to be divine forces. Right? That accomplish the will of God. And so too, whenever I do anything, it's creating a force which is of divine power in the universe. And my angels are coming up. Why are these angels going up from earth? Because these are angels that were created on earth by my deeds that ascend the ladder towards divinity and draw down a reaction, a confirming force from the angels from above. That's what's understood. My acts have divine significance and draw a reaction, a response from God. Okay? However, what's standing on top of this whole thing Yud K Vav K. What's a dream? This is not prophecy. This is a dream. And what is a dream, anyways? Well, very often a dream is you working out your inner dilemmas. Your dreams often have the answer to your problem. What you're struggling with is being performed 
to offer you some understanding. It's part of working yourself out. It's not simply God telling you something. It's you telling yourself something. You needing to learn something. You needing to resolve an inner conflict that you're having. Well, what do you think is the inner conflict that Yaakov's having? He doesn't feel so good about what happened. He's feeling very challenged. Because what did I do? How can I do this? Go in there. Manipulate my father. Get those blessings. Maybe if I wouldn't have gone in there, Asaph would have got those blessings and if he would have got those blessings, maybe that's what was meant to be. I mean, who am I to play God? God's the master of the universe. He's in control. Was what I did a lack of faith? Did I take life too much into my own hands and in some way didn't recognize enough that it's really all in God's hands? He's got a struggle over here. He's recognizing that there is so much divine significance to his acts. He makes a choice. That choice creates an angel. That angel ascends to the highest realms and draws a reaction from God. God is an Elohim. I have choice. God judges me. God reacts and responds to my choice. But wait a second. With all that dynamic exchange, Yud K Vav K is still on top of it all. What do you think? You think you could change history? You think you could undermine God's plan? This is the struggle of Chuva. Well, after I did what I did, does that mean I basically tricked God? Manipulated God? Changed history? Changed the plan? How could that be? What am I anyways? I'm just a drop in the ocean of His being. I don't have an independent reality and certainly have no independent effect on God. You, you hear the struggle. And this is his struggle. So, he's dealing with this dilemma with the two names of God. He's dealing with the dilemma of do I simply exist in a surrendered state of God and what would be would be? Or are my choice really changing things and therefore I've undermined God? What is it? And yet we have in the 13 attributes of God's passion, it says, Hashem, Hashem, Kel Rachum, Vechanum. So Rashi explains from the Midrash, what is it, why does it say the name Yud Ke Vavke twice? Hashem, Hashem, Kel Rachum, Vechanum, Erech Apai, Rav Chesed, Emet, Nazar Chesed, Lalafim, Nazar Avim, Rav Chesed, you know, the whole thing. Why do you repeat that name? So Rashi says, I 
God says, so to speak. Rashi says what God says. Right? I am Hashem before the sin and I am Shem after the sin. You didn't change me. Right? But yet you really did something. I know it's a paradox. Free will versus determinism. But why can I tell you? You didn't change me. Your sin didn't change me. What is this ladder? Stairway to heaven? What is this ladder? It's ascending the ladder to godliness. That's what it is. It's going for the top. And all these superpowers, what do you think they were superpowers about? They were trying to not only conquer the kingdom of man, they are trying to conquer the kingdom of God. They are trying to usurp the position of God. That's what a superpower was all about, certainly in those days. And I'm not so sure not even in these days too. These kings wanted to become gods. Some of them even thought they were gods. So they were ascending to reach that level of godliness. And as they tried to approach that status of divinity, they came tumbling down. Now God says to Yaakov, Yaakov, I want you to send the ladder. Come on up, Yaakov. Yaakov says, oh, no, I'm not. I, I'm not going up there. And Hashem says, no, Yaakov, if you come up, I promise you, you won't fall. And he didn't go up. Who are you to play God, Yaakov? Who are you to go in there, manipulate your father, take those blessings, buy that birthright? That kid was born first and the kid was born first and that's just the way it is and accept it. Who are you to play God, Yaakov? And God is actually inviting Yaakov up. He says, come on up, Yaakov. Join me. Join me in the world of divinity. Yaakov said, I'm, I can't, I'm scared. It's not that Yaakov didn't believe in God. He wasn't yet ready to believe in himself. Could I do that? The angel saw Yaakov's face engraved within the very throne of God. Yaakov reached that lofty level of establishing a unique identity and yet one which only exists within the divine throne. And the angels wanted to kill him because they said, who is this man who is flesh and bones and yet included within the divine himself? Who is this man who has the chutzpah to lie there sleeping? And God said, don't touch him. Don't touch him. Yaakov is a ladder that straddles two worlds. Yaakov is able to unify the divine realm with the physical realm. To enjoy, to associate. This is all part of what he has to realize and what he's working with and what he's struggling with in terms of did he make it happen too much? Should he have let it happen more? How do I do this? And Hashem says, I am Yudke Vavke Elokei Avram. I am the one and only 
And yet the one and only that relates to man, imparts divine significance to man, gives man choice and power, reacts to man, judges man, and deals with the consequences. And yet, still yud Vafke. The one and only. The was, is, will be. And this is what he has to deal with. And the land that you lie on, I will give to you and your children. Because you will continue the torch. Yeah. Is that looked on kind of positively or negatively? I think it's looked at as negatively. He wasn't ready. He didn't feel comfortable with himself. He wasn't ready to really include himself within the divine. He was still frightened that maybe he'd come tumbling down like those other superpowers who thought they were God. Right? Thought that the way of God was to go up there and fight God rather than join. He still wasn't comfortable with himself. Ah, so when his name is changed, that's part of his whole process of finally accepting what he did and recognizing that you can still do tshuva, and but what was, was. Okay? And ultimately, we got to see it was all for the best. Okay? So, and your seed will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out west, east, north, south, and through you all the world will be blessed. He will spread out, extend. He will no longer simply be an individual, but he and his relation to God will create and provide a context for the rest of mankind's struggle. Okay? What does it mean you will spread out what he'll become like big? Like he'll inflate? Do you know, the oral tradition says that the first man extended to the inclusion of all of creation. He wasn't really so much in creation. Creation was more in him than he was in creation. He set the stage for the world, but he blew it. And now Yaakov is beginning to fix that. Okay? He's making serious choices, and yet he has to recognize that it's still in Hashem's hands. And through you the world will be blessed. And you can imagine how he's struggling with it. Why? But what I did, I mean, I look what I did. I manipulated my father. I stole those blessings. And behold, I am with you and I will guard you in all that you go and I will bring you back to this land and I will not leave you until I will do what I said. Yaakov wakes up from his sleep and says, Wow! Yesh yudke vavke bimakom hazeh. There is yudke vavke in this place. Vanochi lo yadati. And I didn't know. Well, what's that supposed to mean? I didn't know. Because had he known what? I wouldn't have gone to sleep. Right? I wouldn't go to sleep. How can I sleep? How can I have the chutzpah to sleep here? Right? And kind of like snooze and kind of do something so this worldly of a thing to do. Just go to sleep. But that's exactly what God wanted him to do. 
to feel comfortable with his this worldly identity, yet in the presence of Yud Kevavke. Viyar Viyomar, and then he feared. He says, How awesome is this place. Ainzekim Beit Elohim. Wait a second. This is nothing if not for the house of God. What's he realizing? He's struggling between these two names, and of course not the names, the implications of the awesomeness of God and how all is truly nullified to God, and yet there is distinct reality to us. This is the house of Elohim, the house whereby man can cultivate and develop himself and his powers and his choices. Okay. He gets up in the morning and he takes the rock that he put around his head and he establishes it as a cornerstone. Calls the place Bet El, the house of God. And promises and says, if God will be with me and guard me on this way that I will go and bread he will give me to eat and clothing and I will return home in peace, then Yudke Vavke will be unto me in Elohim. And this rock will be the cornerstone of the house of God. Now what is this? The Beit HaMikdash. This is the Beit HaMikdash. What is the Beit HaMikdash? It's the place where heaven and earth meet. It's the place where the human and the divine meet. And yet the divine does not become any less divine. The human doesn't become any less human. There's a unity, there's that embrace. And yet there is this oneness. And yet the differences. There's so much divine light in the Beit HaMikdash and yet nobody ever attributes it to be God. Right? People are kissing the wall and bowing before the wall but nobody thinks it's God. And I remember one day a group of Japanese came and I was davening and these guys were davening next to the wall and, and the Irvin, Dominic, they had. I mean, I understand what he was saying. Tears were pouring down his face. It was really heavy duty, right? And then he literally fell on his face and lying on the floor, put his head next to the wall and was crying, lying on the floor with his head next to the wall. Well, the Hasidim around, you know, looked and like, going on you can't do this this is like you know you can't do this to the wall it looks like idolatry bowing to the wall and falling in front of the wall so they came up to him and said no no not here not here you don't do this on one hand we attribute so much divine significance to that wall say the Shekhinah never left it and yet nobody thinks it's God nobody bows down to it all right? It does not become idolatry. Okay? Idolatry is based on recognizing that in the multiplicity of this world is so much divinity. 
But when you don't have that in conjunction with a sense of Yudke Vavke, then what you have is polytheism, a multiplicity of godly, independent godly forces. People think they're God. And here he's realizing this strange combination of Yudke Vavke Elohim. He's recognizing that it's possible to create a house for God on earth, to accommodate divinity within our limited reality without this limited reality becoming God. And he says, if you guard me and watch me as I go to the house of Lavan and I come back in peace, And Rashi brings down peace from any sin that I do not learn from the ways of this man, Lavan. Then Yudke Vavke was to me an Elohim. What does that mean? Yudke Vavke was to me an Elohim. And Rashi says that his name will be upon me from beginning to end and you will find no blemish in my seed. If I can go into Lavan's house and come out in peace, not learning from his ways, not sinning, then this will demonstrate retroactively that Yudke Vavke was unto me and Elohim. What does that mean? Yaakov is struggling. How do I know what I did was really L'Shem Shemayim? Was really for the sake of God? How do I know that there wasn't a sliver of selfishness in what I did? How do I know? There wasn't an iota of vengeance against my brother, of ego. How do I know? Because that's the acid test. I went in there and I did the opposite of truth. But it's okay to do the opposite of truth when it's in a complete state of devotion to establishing truth. Brother Asav is a crook and I can't let him get away with it. And he sold me those birthrights. I gotta get it. How do I know that I truly did this Avera That I truly did that which is in general a transgression. But I did it not for me. Not one bit for me. I didn't do it so I could be the Kohen Gadol. So that I could be Mr. Number One in the Temple. I did it for the world and I did it for God. How do I know? Well, the acid test will be whether I can come out of a place like Lovin's house, the con artist of con artists, when I know that I will be consistently challenged 
upon Him. How do I know? Now that I've incorporated Asaph, when I go to an environment that's so conducive to Asaph-likeness, will I be able to hold on to my honesty? Because if I will be able to, then I will demonstrate that I did what I did completely for God and that it was Yudke Vavke who was to me in Elohim. That when I behave in a manner which is indicative of Elohim, it was in complete unity with my knowledge of Yudke Vavke with surrender. Did I assert myself in a perfect state of surrender to God? That's very hard. Can you imagine what that must be? Asserting yourself in just for the sake of truth, for the sake of God. You know, just the other day I got, I don't want to get into it, but I got a, something in the mail written by the son of Rabbi Merkahana. And the son of Rabbi Merkahana, wasn't written to me, it's a mailing that they sent out to many people, has now taken over the leadership of his father's mission, as he perceives it, and has started a movement called Od Kahana Chai. Kahana is still alive. So he was answering reacting to an article in the Jewish press by a fellow who will be writing articles called In the Tradition of Mer Kahana. And in this article, he begins to knock Binyamin Zev Kahana down. What are you doing? This is idolatry. You know, who do you think you are? Taking over for your father. What are you talking about? Only God can resurrect the dead. Right? And a man, the man is dead. So, his son, Merkhana's son, is writing a rebuttal to that. And you can hear it in his words. He's not doing this for himself. He's doing it because he knows, in his eyes anyways, that he must continue to portray the truth that his father portrayed. And he's not doing it in an egotistical way. And in and of himself, he'd rather not do it. And when you see the guy, he, he's really a very humble, soft-spoken fellow. And when he gets up there, this Binyamin Zev Kahana, you see he's forcing himself to take on this strength. And you feel ultimate humbleness. I heard the fellow speak. And again, I'm not in any way promoting their philosophies necessarily. I'm impressed with their devotion, even though maybe they're devoted to something that's not a thing. I don't know. I'm not making a political statement. But when you actualize yourself and you take a leadership position and you do something which in the eyes of many would be considered, who are you to play God? 
Are you actualizing the godliness that you've been created in and yet not in an egotistical way, but in a total sense of surrender, in a total sense of for the sake of God, for the sake of truth? That's the question. When people manipulate, they do it for themselves. And even if they say they're doing it for a great cause, but isn't there still a little, little iota of ego, perhaps? It's like, I once mentioned to you this story when I was in this yeshiva one day and these guys got into this amazing fight over something really silly, these yeshiva boys. Next day we're in class and the rabbi's talking about Torah and what it does for people and how it creates peace and is going on. So one of the fellows had the, another fellow in class had the guts to put up his hand and says, Rabbi, Rabbi, I have to tell you, I've lived in college dorms before. And I want you to understand that being here in the yeshiva is so disturbing because I've seen fights and arguments like I've never seen before sometimes. And I just can't understand it. I can't, can't put the two together. Here are people serving God. And, and yet, how could this be? So the rabbi said, oh, my friend, it's very simple. These are people who know God is great. And the proof of God's greatness is that God has them serving Him. Right? That's the proof of God's greatness. That He's got me serving Him. Isn't He great? In other words, even when you do something for the sake of God, it could be really for your own sake. It's establishing yourself, showing how great you are. And it wasn't for the sake of God. And this is what Yaakov is... How do you know? And Yaakov himself doesn't know. How can I be sure one million percent that what I did was completely for the sake of God. How do I know that what I did, which is the epitome of self-assertion to go manipulate somebody, and yet do it for the sake of truth. Isn't this amazing? To lie, but lie for truth. How do I know I could do that? Well, so this is what I'm setting up, Hashem. This is my test. If you'll please guard me. And let me go in there and help me come out of there. And not use, abuse this new talent I have incorporated when being daily and daily challenged by a con artist like Lavan. Well, if I can get out of that one, then it will be an indication that your name has been upon me always. And there's nothing that I ever did for my own name, for my own status. Everything I did was for your name. And that you will find no blemish in my seed. 
See, Abraham had a seed that was blemished. He had a Yishmael. Yitzchak had a seed that was blemished. Had an Esav. Because somewhere still within them was an aspect of a sense of self divorced from that identification with God. But Yaakov is asking, here I went ahead and did it. Boy, did I actualize self. And yet, was that self in any way divorced from a complete surrender to God? A complete identification with God's world and God's truth? It's tough. You can imagine this dilemma. To what extent are you playing God and thereby usurping the divine sovereignty? Or to what extent are you in fact bid to play God and yet not divorced from a complete identification with doing it for the sake of God. It's, it's tough. And he's struggling with it. He's really struggling with it. So the Zohar says in the name of Yaakov, it's like one of the repeating statements of Yaakov, God, you know, everything I did was for your sake. That's his statement that he is continually putting out there. That was his. And so if he has to make such a statement, you know everything I did was for your sake, then for me it implies that what he went ahead and did was something which is very rare and very dangerous called an Avera Lishma, a transgression for the sake of God. Rare situations, you find this notion in, in, in the Talmud, Rear situations. But I'll tell you where you do find it. You find it with the story of the first man. Because the Kabbalah says, why did the first man eat of that tree? Why did he transgress the will of God? He was trying to do an Aveira he was trying to transgress for the sake of God because he thought, well, through this transgression... I would explore the inner realms of evil and by exploring that I would turn it around and show the ultimate trick of tshuva. Right? And that would be an even greater expression of God's oneness. Right? What's a greater sanctification of God's name? A person who was righteous their whole lives? Or a person who strays but caught in that world of illusion breaks out of it and demonstrates no. Right? Ah. So really he thought that he could do this sin for the sake of God in the name of God to through deviating from the way of God and returning bring an even deeper clarity of God's truth in our oneness. But he failed. He failed. Because there was still, even if it's a quarter of a percent right, of selfish interest and self-interest, boom, it's all over. But Yaakov did something which was, let's face it, somewhat of a manipulative 
transgressing type of act. But he did it only for the sake of God. And I tell you, nobody has the right to tamper with this kind of stuff. Right? And only Rivka said, you can do it, my son. We will fix that first sin. Because you'll do it completely for the sake of God. Because we must stop Asaph. And this is what he's struggling with. You know, was there maybe one iota of selfishness? Was it really Lishma? And so the Talmud says that in fact, Yaakov did have the beauty of the first man before the sin. He was able to recapture that kind of association with God prior to that fall. And in fact, we know that the curse of the sin is death. But there is a person in the Chumash that never died. Yaakov. Yaakov is recorded to really have never died. The word death is not associated with him at all. So Yaakov didn't even die. He had such an association with God that even that which in general would be considered transgressing God's will as I fall into a certain selfishness. He did that which is generally the epitome of selfishness to manipulate, but did it for the sake of truth and to expose the real manipulator. He manipulated the manipulator, Asav, to expose who he really is. But now he's wondering, but maybe I'm a little Asav too. And this is what he struggles with. And remember, as we learned, to do an Avera Lashma means you're completely ready to accept the consequences and be punished. Right? It's not like you figure God's going to say, okay, because then, you know, that's not it. Right? It's not like you're going to say, oh, God's going to say, okay. It says, and I know that I'm doing it completely for God and there's no selfishness whatsoever. No selfishness whatsoever. And I may get punished for this. But I'm ready to accept the punishment because I love God so much. It's, it's a high level. And um, I can't, you know, no one can learn from Yaakov. You can only learn what you're not <laughs> from Yaakov. But I don't think anybody can learn from Yaakov to be that. Because he, it's playing with the fire of fires. And there are people who try to do this. There are people who try to do these type of things that they call Shabtai Tzvi, trying to go into the Klippa, into the realms of evil and go in there. And You know, there are these kind of things that have happened. Um, they say Noah tried to do this. He tried to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and bad, but this time really, uh, but he couldn't do it. And he failed also. And Yaakov goes in there and he comes out. But he's still not sure of himself. He's not, how can you ever be sure that you ever did it L'Shem Shemaim? So he's asking Hashem, let me pass this test. Let me accept the pain of being in the house of the ultimate con artist without reacting, right? Without it hitting my ego. Humbly accept. Handle myself. But I know what I'm going in for. Right, and that's how Rashi is clearly sensitive to that. 
by making it clear that if this happens and if that's what's going to be, then it will be an indication that Hashem will be an Hashem Yudke Vavke, right? Wasn't to me. I asserted myself as a derivative of surrendering to God. Can you imagine that, right? And that's that's what I was trying to convey with someone like Binyamin Zev Kahana, which again I don't know, but when I saw him speak, and again it's you know it's. It's dangerous for me to associate even with the political views because people have so many different opinions of it. I'm not making a political statement about whether he's right or wrong. But it's when a person asserts themselves, takes leadership position, and everybody's looking at you saying, what an egomaniac. Who is this guy to go playing God and playing leader and this and that? And you do that. And yet, what motivated you to do that? It was your surrender to God. Right? Out of a complete devotion and surrender to God, you understood that you have to assert yourself. That's, that's really the highest level of, of self, power. Yeah, he really still didn't believe in himself. He didn't believe, could I really enjoin the divine, include myself right up there in that highest level without it in some way getting to my ego and boom. Well, so that's the interesting thing. I mean, it does say that they buried him. <laughs> it does say that they embalmed him even. The Egyptians embalmed him <laughs> for a while. Um, so then, what, what, what does that mean? I think it means that he never experienced death because he was always alive. Death means you, you kind of separate, you leave. But there was nowhere to leave because his reality was God. He didn't, he, he, he didn't live in this world and left this world. He lived in the context of God. And therefore, he never left. There was nowhere to leave. Right? He was always there. He so much identified with God. He so much established an identity and yet one that was in complete identification with God without thinking he's God or thinking God's him. Right? And yet with that, you have to understand, what did death come from? Death came from a human being divorcing themselves from God, right? Because they fell to a selfish interest. Even though, you know, the first man didn't think he was. He thought he was doing a novel lishman. It was completely selfish, right? That the selfishness was selflessness, right? But now there's still an iota, a little but an iota enough to fail and drop and to fall. Right? To fall. Um, and therefore, he divorced himself from the life of life, and now he falls into something called death. But Yaakov so identified with the divine and the divine values that even when he did something that seems to deviate from truth, it was all completely in the name of truth. Wow. That's eternal life. And so, even though he passed out of a body, it wasn't a death of separation. It was it was true living and eternal living. And this is this is his high level. This is what he was able to do. And psh, it's just unbelievable. Why didn't he know that he just did the right thing? Because part of humbleness is never believe until in yourself until the day you die. <laughs> That's part of humbleness, right? That you never believe in yourself and say, Yeah. You always, if, if, you, 
if, you know, the only way to maintain humbleness is to always have the humbleness to know that you might have been wrong. Right? As long as you're open to that, so then you'll be open to it. And so he's open to it, and he's asking Hashem to give him a confirmation to be able to confidently say to himself and to the world that everything I did was L'Shem Shemayim. And you know when he'll feel comfortable doing it? When he'll finally get the name Israel. What about Jacob's seed? So Jacob's seed is considered to be completely whole and pure. He didn't have any sons that were that had an innate kind of evilness to them. Even though they each had such distinct... And even though they did some rotten things. Right? Even though they did some rotten things. This is it, uh, it says his bed was complete. His children were complete. Each and every one of them was able to be the bearer of the torch of Abraham and be that source of blessing for the world. Even though they did do some pretty rotten things. I mean, you know, and, um, you know, it's, the whole story is pretty fascinating what they did. So, but. Um, Yeah, yeah. It, you know, reflecting the 12 zodiacs and 12 months of the year. Yeah, yeah. They are, together they are complete. Like they, they, they developed, they established that completeness. But, uh, you know, in mystical talk, Yishmael is somehow bound to what's called the klipa, the hard shell. He's born with a certain hard shell which is the hard shell that Avraham had still within himself that he didn't completely uh, fix. And so to Yitzchak, in giving birth to Esav, Esav is, you know, Yitzchak is Gvura, and Esav is the Kalipa of Gvura, the negativity of Gvura, of power. Yishmael is the negativity of kindness, because there's a negativity to kindness. If there's too much kindness and it's not balanced, then that too has negative qualities to it. Okay, but the balanced person is Yaakov, and his children are the externalization of that balance. Okay, and you need them all in a proper organization to to translate that balance into nation. Because what Yaakov did. What he did was he fixed himself as an individual. But that's only the beginning of the world fixing. Because now that we have this individual who's fixed himself in that way, who's established that kind of relationship with God and has been able to draw that truth of God's oneness, that truth of God's love into the world, now we have to translate that into a nation, which is Am Yisrael. And once Am Yisrael will reach that point, we'll be ready to translate that into a universal phenomenon. And that's how this whole thing works in the blossoming of what's called Tikkun Olam, the fixing of the world. This presentation by Rabbi David Aaron has been brought to you by Israelite, inspiring a renaissance in Jewish living. To access additional presentations from our online media library, order our best-selling books, or learn more about Israelite programming, including seminars, web-based learning, teleconferences, spiritual retreats, Shabbaton experiences, Israel missions, and leadership training, please visit us at www.israelite.org. That's www.israelight.org. You can also call us in New York at 212-947-4990. 
or in Jerusalem at country code 972-627-4890. We hope you enjoyed this presentation, and we look forward to learning with you at Israelite. 